This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 20, East Atlanta. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. Hope that everyone had a great week. And today I'm bringing you an episode that was a direct request from one of my listeners. Now, I've had people before send me some suggestions or links and things like that, and I'm always working on that. But this was my first kind of direct request. And shout out to Mike and his wife and his daughter who live in East Atlanta and asked if I could do an episode about their hood. Now, I was extremely flattered once I kind of picked myself up off the floor. I ran to the bookstore, which I never go like right to buy the books, but I was like so excited about doing this and I learned a lot about it. Here is where I confess that when it comes to the east side, I'm much less confident in my history knowledge. When I first moved to Georgia, I lived in Norcross for a tiny bit, and then from there, I spent the majority of my years in Marietta, and now a little bit closer to the perimeter, but still on what I call the western portion of Metro Atlanta. Of course, I've been to Decatur, I love going out in East Atlanta Village, but when it comes to the history and the neighborhoods, I just didn't know as much about the things as I do in Fulton County. So this was a challenge for me, one that I had planned to undertake in the future, but I was kind of pushing it aside. So I'm thankful to Mike for making me go out of my comfort zone and allowing me a chance to learn so much about this great neighborhood. The first thing I want to clarify is that today, the city of Atlanta is officially in two different counties, Fulton and DeKalb. If you're a history lover or you've ever read early Atlanta history, it gets a little confusing because in the beginning, it was only DeKalb County. That's right, DeKalb County came first, long before Fulton County ever would. The Indian Springs Treaty of 1821 would remove all of the Creek and Cherokee Indians from the area. The following year, the land is given away in a land lottery. So for a fee of $19, You could collect your 202 acres in this vast wilderness, now called DeKalb County. It was named for Baron Johann DeKalb, a German. I probably said that wrong, so sorry. But he was an officer in the Revolutionary War. Often, if you see um, an old text, DeKalb County spelled D-E space K-A-L-B, that's why. Or sometimes if you see it spelled with a capital D and then a capital K in the middle. They would name um, the county seat Decatur after another war hero named Stephen Decatur. And then Fulton County would not be created until 1853. And they named that after railroad engineer Hamilton Fulton. Now, the reason I'm giving you all of this Fulton and DeKalb history is because the border of East Atlanta is very literally the dividing line between these two counties. Moreland Avenue was formerly called County Line Road. It doesn't get more descriptive than that, people. If you stand on the center of Moreland today, and please do not do that, you would have one foot in Fulton and one foot in DeKalb. Within the confines of East Atlanta, um, there's a road called Flat Shoals that runs diagonally. I'm sure many people don't think of a road as being special or having incredible history, but Flat Shoals is really special. During Native American timeline, this route was a trail that actually stretched from Savannah to the Chattahoochee River used by Native American tribes. Initially, it was called the Sandtown Trail, um, and it would be renamed a few times by white settlers throughout history. Today, we know it as Flat Shoals Road, and then as it goes further south through the neighborhood, it becomes Boulder Crest. 
The first white settler to have this land as part of the lottery was named Thomas Simmons. His property, he had a gristmill and a sawmill, were near Sugar Creek, which a portion of actually still exists. It runs alongside I-20 and then underneath it at some point, um, but it's kind of on the other side of the highway. The area is what you would probably call Kirkwood now, but before the invasion of the interstates, the East Atlanta neighborhood boundaries reached over to this side. Thomas would die leaving his estate to his wife, Eleanor, and Eleanor's daughter um, would go on to take care of the property, and she married a guy named James Spanish Jim Brown. And Spanish Jim is commonly known as the first founder of East Atlanta. And it sounds like he was quite a sight. He had a glass eye that he would often cover with a patch. The Brown home was said to have stood at the corner of Moreland Avenue and Flatchholes Road. So right when you get off the interstate, um, there's that sign now that says, Welcome to East Atlanta. We cannot talk about East Atlanta without talking about the Civil War. To give you some very basic war history, it wouldn't be until almost the end of the war when Atlanta saw any action. And the famous Battle of Atlanta was fought in the area that is now East Atlanta. By 1864, we're three years deep into the war, and Atlanta has become the center of Confederate supplies, thanks to all our wonderful railroads. General Sherman, Union General, knew that capturing Atlanta would be the turning point towards victory, and he had his sights set. In the winter of 1864, Union forces had already captured Roswell, which is about 30 miles away, so with this news, DeKalb residents started to, excuse my French, but pack up their shit and kind of get ready to leave. By July, the enemy crosses the Chattahoochee River. And if you listen to episode four on Grant Park, I spoke more in depth about the Confederate fortifications that L.P. Grant um, created around the city. But General Sherman knew that attempting to penetrate these fortifications straight on was not a strategic move. So that's why the Battle of Atlanta was fought outside the city limits. And yes, keep in mind, East Atlanta in this early time was not considered part of Atlanta. It was a whole two miles away, and it would continue to be hanging out by itself um, for the next 45 years. I'm going to make a feeble attempt at explaining some war stuff here, but the Battle of Atlanta was a bloody and a really pivotal moment in the Civil War. Union or Northern troops were encamped along what is now Clifton Road, and the front line is set up on current Flatshoals Road. The woods surrounding this road would see the deaths of 12,000 men and two opposing generals. Union General James McPherson would be shot by a sharpshooter while up on his horse, the story is, raising his hand to shield the sun from his eyes. After the war's end, the person that was with him when he was killed would bring a group back to mark the exact spot that he fell. In 1877, a memorial to McPherson would be built. Um, it was an upturned cannon on a pedestal. And a similar upturned cannon would also mark the spot where General Walker died. William Walker was a Georgia native, and he was a Confederate general. Uh, he was born in Augusta, and he was also shot while sitting atop his horse. The first Walker Monument was erected in 1902 at the exact spot of his death, but they moved it to its present location in the 1930s. Both the Walker and McPherson Monument are in really sad shape. Walker's especially because it's right on Glenwood Avenue, it's next to a gas station, and you know how Atlanta driving goes, I think this thing has been hit by a car more than once. There has been 
a lot of discussions recently regarding Confederate monuments, and the city of Atlanta formed a task force, um, if you can call it that, to discuss and implement a plan. Now, recently, they renamed Confederate Avenue, but it's been a little bit of radio silence on anything else regarding these two monuments. There is an organization, I'm going to put a link in the show notes, but it's um, BATL, like Battle of ATL, and they are raising money for the restoration of the memorials. Um, They want to be able to contextualize it, tell the story, and I think they also do tours. So I'm going to put that link there for you guys. After the war, East Atlanta settlers would come back to the area and start anew. In 1883, um, both J.M. Williams and Ebenezer Augustus Minor would each open a general store. The latter called his store Marbut and Minor General Store. The building is actually still there. Um, It's actually the SunTrust Bank now. That's where the store was. So think of Moreland Avenue as a dirt road. And here's a little town, one or two general stores. In that same year, Atlanta begins its first streetcar service, which, by the way, was pulled by horse and buggy. There is a line called the Soldier's Home Line, and this went from Fair Street, which is now like in Castleberry Hill, all the way through East Atlanta, across Moreland, to the Confederate Soldier's Home, which was pretty much a veteran's nursing home built in 1891 as a pet project of Henry Grady. By the turn of the century, the line would become steam-powered, and this really made the area appealing for people to live. The streetcar could get you to and from work, you know, no more walking, no more taking your horse. And when the Metropolitan Streetcar Company was formed by some Atlanta bigwigs, they also purchased a chunk of land to develop as a subdivision in East Atlanta. They named it McPherson Park. And they would advertise it along with the streetcar. So like, you know, hey, you could live right next to the streetcar. The streetcar takes you to work. This subdivision structure is really what makes East Atlanta what it becomes. So if you look at history, after McPherson Park, it's just a series of subdivisions developed every few years. There's at least 20. And it takes you all the way into the 1950s. So most of the homes you see in the neighborhood There are ranches, craftsmen, generally smaller, middle-class homes. There are some exceptions, however, and the one you're probably thinking of is the Zuber Jarrell House. This is that gorgeous, white, neoclassical revival mansion that is at 810 Flatshells Avenue. It definitely strikes you, you're kind of exiting the business district, you pass all these regular-sized houses, and you're just hit with this beauty. The home was built by John William Zuber, son of German immigrants, who moved to Atlanta in 1871 when he was four. The story is that his father had fought in the Civil War with a New York regiment and was so moved by the destruction he witnessed in Atlanta that he wanted to move his families um, to the city and help rebuild. John would inherit his father's wholesale lumber business, and when he married in 1904, he built this house quote-unquote, for his bride, as the classic story always goes, and the house was completed in 1906. It was sold to John Jarrell in 1937, so that's where you get that hyphenated name from. The best part is that it is being meticulously restored. makes my heart so happy. And it's actually the only structure in East Atlanta that is on the National Register. We hear the term Greater Atlanta all the time now, 
But what's funny to me to think about is that all of these in-town neighborhoods that we now covet as being ITP, they started as suburbs that were annexed by the city throughout history. For East Atlanta, that time came in 1909 when the city created a new ninth ward, which would encompass part of Copen Hill, which doesn't exist anymore, Druid Hills, Edgewood, Reynoldstown, and East Atlanta. Becoming part of Atlanta would guarantee you a fire department, public education, water and sewer, things like that. And this was really a boom time for East Atlanta. The East Atlanta Banking Company entered the community in 1911. Um, They built the Flatiron-shaped building that's at Flat Shoals in Glenwood. Now, this has been a bar since the 90s. But for me, it's one of the buildings that really sticks out when you're in East Atlanta Village. And I think if you look up in the top, you can still see East Atlanta Bank lettering at the top. A new church building is built by the Martha Brown United Methodist Congregation. This building is really unique. It's right on Moreland Avenue, and it's neoclassical revival. But to a layperson, I would describe it as having like a rotunda built into the front. By the way, I always picture that Atlanta architects have my photo on a wall and they throw darts at it. (laughs) So I'm just not doing a good job, but it's a really cool building. Um, And this congregation started in 1892 as East Atlanta Methodist. They began meeting in someone's home. They moved into a small school building. And then they built a new church in 1898. By 1918, they were successful enough to open the this beautiful building that we have now and they would expand onto the back. Now, it's no longer the Martha Brown congregation, but it's home to Eastside United Methodist. I love it because it sounds almost exactly like the first congregation, so for me it's a little bit of connection to the past. Another special building I want to point out is the Madison Theater. The Georgia Trust, which is an amazing organization, puts out a list of their most endangered properties each year, and they call it places in peril. They're usually all over the state, but one or two from Atlanta always make the cut. And this year, the Madison Theater is being highlighted. And let me tell you, when I realized where it was, I was shocked. Of the numerous times that I've gone to hang out in East Atlanta Village, I've walked past this a hundred times and I've never noticed it. It opened in 1927 with 600 seats, upscale furnishings, air conditioning, which was really a luxury at the time, and this was the finest and most expensive neighborhood theater in the South. And it remained a theater well into the 1960s, and they closed the theater part, but they kept the kind of um, front sidewalk retail open into the 80s. It's been vacant since then, but the stage, the auditorium, the columns, and then some of the intricate details, they're still in there. So this is really worth saving. I want to put a link for the endangered list so you can see this and then see other things that are in trouble. Let's talk schools for a minute because I do love Atlanta schools. The first school in East Atlanta neighborhood was in a small house at the intersection of Haas Avenue and Metropolitan Place. According to the research paper that I read, in this building house um, is still there. If you use Google Maps or if you drive by, it's a really unassuming red house. I had no way to confirm this information is true, so I'm just hoping it's right. If anyone knows anything about it, shoot me a message. But in 1909, 
the East Atlanta School gets its first official school building. It opens on Moreland Avenue, and it had all the fancy amenities you could hope for for the first decade of the 20th century. Indoor plumbing and heat. (laughs) And in the late uh, 20s, early 30s, they would rename this school John B. Gordon. John B. Gordon, Civil War general, you know, the guy with the horse statue at the state capitol, the guy who's grandmaster of the KKK. Insert a really great moment to have a conversation about lost cause ideology and the renaming of things in Atlanta. But I think that that's another conversation for another day. I hope to do an episode on it in the future. The school would stay open until I think the 1980s, and then the building sat vacant for several decades. There are a lot of urban exploration shots inside the building, and I'm going to post a few of them in my stories and then um, a link for you guys to see. In 2014, uh, it caught on fire and then shortly thereafter, demolished. So now there are very fancy apartment homes that you can live in. The other schools that serve the neighborhood are all either gone, have changed names and places, and many of them are in parts of Atlanta that aren't technically East Atlanta. There is one that I do want to mention, and that's Murphy High School. Originally opened as J.C. Murphy Junior High in 1940, it was converted to a high school and renamed Murphy High School in 1948. Now, it stands in what is now Kirkwood, so just over that I-20 barrier, but keep in mind, for the highway, the borders are a little different. Now, the school is significant because on August 30th, 1961, it was chosen as one of the four Atlanta schools that would desegregate. I'd really love to do an entire episode on this topic, but to give you some brief information, that morning, two African-American women walked into Murphy High School as the first black students there. Keep in mind, this is seven years after Brown vs. Board of Education, but I'll wait and get into that in a later time. There was no violence, no protests, and Atlanta was um, really lauded with how well we handled the integration. There are historical photos um, in the Atlanta History Archives from that day, and I'll put up a link um, also in the show notes so you guys can see. In 1988, the school was renamed um, as Alonzo Krim Open Campus High School. But it's still there, and it looks just like the old Murphy High School, so definitely drive by and take a peek at that. As the 1960s civil rights movement grows in Atlanta, the local legend story is that a grand dragon of the KKK lived in the neighborhood next to East Atlanta, which made East Atlanta a target for activists in the realm of African-American housing. I didn't find the origins of this rumor, and I don't know how true it is. Um, It did open a whole other can of worms for future episodes, but in summary, the demographics of East Atlanta begin to change, and more and more black families move in, and sadly, more and more white families move out. East Atlanta is high on the list of places affected by white flight of the 50s and 60s, and as I said before, when it came time to build interstates in Atlanta, they more than sometimes went through poor or black neighborhoods, and they also acted as a racial dividing line. In 1962, Interstate I-20 would cut through the top of East Atlanta, and I-20 specifically was very much a barrier to black encroachment. By the 1980s, East Atlanta is struggling. There is 60% of its commercial district is vacant, and gentrification is a hot topic in Atlanta right now, 
But um, for East Atlanta, it's not really their first rodeo, so to speak. There was a wave of gentrification in the 90s. And I think that now there's no place in Atlanta that isn't dealing with it. I'll give you my personal view on why I love East Atlanta so much. My boyfriend and I find ourselves in East Atlanta Village often. And the other day we were actually sitting there like, why do we love this place so much? And for both of us is that there's no pretense. I truly feel like everyone, quote unquote, belongs in East Atlanta Village. I can be dressed up or dressed down. There's no judgments. There's truly the weirdest mishmash of people when you walk down Flash Hills Avenue. As a history lover and preservationist, it's one of the few places in Atlanta that is not contrived. It's not Atlantic Station or an Avalon. It's not some created mastermind plan. All of the storefronts are different. They don't match. You can use the archives to see businesses that were there 60 years ago, 40 years ago, 20 years ago. The street art that Atlanta is now well known for, for me, it was covering every building in East Atlanta long before other parts of the city. And even the neighborhood. So, you know, I go out to eat or or to hang out in the village. But when you go into the neighborhood, the other day I was exploring and I passed a house with llamas in the front lawn. Llamas. So <laughs> to me, that's very much the spirit of East Atlanta. I want to leave you with one last story. And of course, it wouldn't be right if it wasn't about a cemetery. Sylvester Cemetery is hidden among the neighborhoods. It's off Clifton Road and Brayburn Circle, sort of near that intersection. What started off as a small family lot would morph into the cemetery for a local church. Now there are 1,400 people buried there. The earliest grave dates back to 1838, but only 250 have headstones or markers. I bring it up because A, I love cemeteries, but B, it's the final resting place of the earliest settlers of what would become East Atlanta. Even Spanish Jim Brown is there, along with 67 war veterans um, and its most famous resident, who's named Fiddlin' John Carson. Now, I touched on him a tiny bit in the Leo Frank episode, but he is known as the father of country music. I think he was the first person to record a country album or play one on the radio. Um, He was a Cabbage Town resident, and in the Leo Frank episode, I talked about him because he wrote um, the song The Ballad of Mary Fagan. I always say this, but for me, a cemetery is a great way to wrap up what you know about a place, but also kind of meet new people that might spark an interest and something to be curious about. So there it is, the story of East Atlanta. If for some strange reason you've never been there, please go this weekend. There are tons of places to eat, drink, and dance, but stretch out a little further and explore the neighborhood, the homes, the buildings, and of course, the cemetery. Thank you to everyone for listening. I'm always appreciative and blown away when someone shares a podcast or writes me a review. The best part is the list of people I've been able to connect with through here and even the few that I become real life friends with. (laughs) That is the best part of this experience. A reminder to leave a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a request or a topic you'd like to hear, always feel free to contact me. All of the information to do that is listed in the show notes. And one last special thanks um, to Chrissy for allowing me to use her photos of East Atlanta Village. If you guys are out exploring, 
and get some good ones, make sure you tag hashtag Archive Atlanta. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye!